All right, uh, let's go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 in your copy of God's Word. Yes, we are still in Romans 9. We are still there. We're going to verse 19. That's where we pick up today. We're going to read verses 19 through verse 26. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been working our way over these last few weeks through Romans 9. It's one of the more challenging passages in the Roman letter. And last week we took a little bit of a detour. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to check it out on the podcast. We took a little bit of a detour and examined a part of Ephesians, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, as a way of kind of setting the table for what we will see today. And so here, real quick, are three concrete things that we saw in the book of Ephesians and Devin's going, to throw these up on the, Devin's going to throw these up on the screen for us this morning. Uh, so three concrete things we saw in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. First of all, salvation is God's work and is not based on any personal merit. So one of the things that he repeats, Paul repeats in Ephesians 2, which was written after Romans, was this, by grace you have been saved, and it is not your own doing. Secondly, we learn that God has done all of this so that, quote, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And that's such a fascinating statement because on one hand, you could say that God has already shown us the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ Jesus by just sending Jesus who came and died and rose. But yet I think Paul's making the case that oh, you don't, even, you don't even know the half of it yet. Like, like you, you, you see it as grace, but just wait until you, until you experience the fullness of what God has prepared for you as his child. Like, it, it's amazing now, but, but oh man, down the road, in the future, in the coming age, you're going to see it for everything that it is, and you're going to be blown away, and the result is just going to be worship of him, just eternal worship of God for what he has done for us through Christ. And then third, Paul said, we have been created and shaped by God. His language was, we are his, his uh, workmanship. Some 
Galatians say we are his handiwork. We've been created and shaped by God, and he has preordained good work for us to walk in, or good works for us to walk in. And, and that's not just one thing. That's not just your career. That's not just your vocation. It's, it's in the whole of your life, I think. God, God has prepared good work for you to do as a parent with your children. God has prepared good work for you to do in your neighborhood with your neighbors. God has prepared good work for you no matter where you are, no matter where you exist. And we can actually look to the life of Paul and see this in action. Because Paul, no matter where he is, he finds what the Lord has called him to do in that moment, in that place. So even if things are bad, even if he's in jail, what is he doing? Well, he's preaching to the jailers. Even if he's shipwrecked on a desert island, like he's finding the people who are on the island with them. So, so Paul is uncovering the good work that God has for him, no matter what context he's in, no matter what his circumstances are. And part of what he's saying is the same thing's true for you as well. God has prepared these things in advance for you. You might call them divine but, but I think it's more than just that. I, I think just in the whole of your life, God has gifted you, God has sent you, God has put you where you are with purpose. And we have to have open eyes and open ears to listen to the Spirit and see where He's moving in our context. So we saw all those things that, uh, that were in Romans 2 last week, and there's more that we could talk about, but I think we should hold on to those three in particular for today. And with those things in mind, we turn to Romans 9, and, and I want... Um, to briefly walk through our text today, and then I want to address some practical application of this for our lives, because we can get bogged down, I think, in doctrine when it comes to a text like this, which is dense. I think it's also really easy to forget what has come before in Romans when we get into the middle of this, because there is so much there. Um, so I want to hopefully provide a little bit of practical application for us at the end. Uh, A.W. Tozer, who is this guy, famously said this. He was a preacher, and uh, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Whether you realize it or not, your mental picture of God shapes your spiritual life. It shapes your spiritual life. For example, if, if God to you is just this angry guy up in the clouds who's just waiting to a lightning bolt at you in the form of trouble or suffering or hardship, then you better believe that's going to shape your spiritual life, isn't it? You're either going to abandon him and say to hell with you, or you're going to constantly live in fear that God is just waiting to punish you for the things you've done. If your view of God is that God is like Santa Claus, or that God is a magic genie, and that he prim primarily exists for your happiness and your good, well, one, life's going to be real confusing to you if that's your view of God, but it's going to shape your spiritual life, is it not? If your view of God is that he is that kind of hippy-dippy, love-and-peace guy um, that sometimes Jesus gets lumped into that bucket. Jesus is the guy wearing sandals and a dress saying, hey, can't we all just get along? Like, if that's your view of who God is, if that's your view of who Jesus is, that's very much going to shape your life, isn't it? So it's incredibly important, to Tozer's point, that our view of God would not be shaped by culture, that our view of God would not be made up, that our view of God would not just be something we've cobbled together based on what we want Him to be, but that our view of God would be biblical, that our understanding of Him would be true to what we see in the pages of Scripture. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, and it's so key that we think rightly about these things. 
To that end, scholar Christopher Ashe says that Romans 9 provides us with a Copernican revolution when it comes to our thinking about God. Romans 9 provides us with a Copernican revolution when it comes to our thinking about God. And here's what he means. Copernicus was a mathematician in the 1500s, and Copernicus set the intellectual world ablaze by asserting that the sun and not the earth was actually the center of the universe. Because up until that time, people looked up in the heavens and it seemed like everything just kind of revolved around this place, right? Here comes the sun, here comes the moon, there go the stars. It seems like we are the center of things and everything else revolves around us. Copernicus comes along and says, no, 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 that's not true no matter how much you want to believe it's true. You are actually not the center of the universe. The sun is the center of the universe and you revolve around it. And if we're not careful to apply that to today's text, if we're not careful, we can come to believe that we are the center of the universe and everything else kind of revolves around us. Our wants, our wishes, our preferences, our schedules. If we're not careful, we can come to think that God primarily exists for us and to bless us or to answer our prayers and that God is just waiting with us in mind to do kind of whatever we want him to do. If we're not careful to be true to the teaching of Scripture, we can conclude that our place is something that it is not in reality. God is actually the center, and all things, including us, revolve around Him and His will. We revolve around Him and His will. And because He is the center, because He is the creator, because as Paul says, He is the potter, He is the molder, he gets to choose how his creation is used and who his people are. Did you notice the parable that we read today in Matthew? This man that owns a property goes out and he hires laborers. He hires some at the beginning of the day. He hires some at the end of the day. He pays them all the same thing. The people who started at the beginning of the day go, wait a minute, this is unfair. Meanwhile, the people at the end of the day are going, wow, I made a whole denarius. I didn't even work the whole day, man. And what does is, what is the landowner, what does the master say? Do I not get to choose what I do with what is mine? Do I not get to choose what I do with what is mine? That's Paul's case. And it's not just something that he came up with. That God is the molder, God is the potter, and God gets to choose how his creation is used and who his people are. It's not just Paul's assertion. It's actually something that we can go back to the very beginning of Scripture to see. In fact, quite possibly the first Bible story you ever heard in your life is an example of this truth. This has literally been true from the very first pages of Genesis, from the beginning of time. Look with me. This is Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We're in chapter 6 at this point of Genesis. <laughs> and man has gotten to the point where every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted 
that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So one of the first stories that we see in the Bible is that of God choosing to kill, according to Genesis, all of mankind, to wipe them out with the exception of one man, his family, a boat full of animals, who he chooses to save. Now, if we're not careful, we can come away with the notion that Noah and his family somehow deserved to be saved, that they somehow deserved to be saved. And that's basically what I was taught as a kid. God looked at the earth. Everyone was sinful all the time, except Noah. And what does it say? What what did we read? It said that Noah found favor with God. And and to be fair, later in verse 9, it does say Noah was a righteous man. Noah was blameless in his generation. But that doesn't mean he was sinless, right? That doesn't mean he was without sin or that he somehow deserved God's favor. And this is actually, interestingly, a place where the King James Version of the Bible can be helpful to us. Verse 8 that we read from the ESV says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But the way that the King James Version translates this uh, Hebrew passage is that Noah found grace with God. Noah found grace. And what is grace? It's favor, but not just any kind of favor. It is unmerited favor. Noah found unmerited favor with God. By grace, Paul said, you are saved. Even with Noah, by grace, you are saved. Even if Noah was sinless, the rest of his family wasn't. By grace, you have been saved by God's unmerited favor. So here's the question that Paul thinks people will be asking based on what he's teaching here in Romans 9. If it is true that God effectively chooses who will receive his unmerited favor and who won't, then how in the world can God find fault with anybody? Like if that's true, if, if, if salvation is the Lord's, and he gives it to whoever he wants, then how can he at the same time find fault with anybody? And along with this, Paul is asserting that God's will is, quote, irresistible, which would have been a prevailing Jewish view at the time as well. If God is God, then what he wants happens, right? If if what he wants doesn't happen, or if he somehow is incapable of making what he wants happen, then how is he God? Right? How is he this omnipotent, all-powerful creator of all things? Because you go back to Genesis 1, and he literally speaks his will, and his will happens. So how, later on down the road, could that not be the case? Right? So Paul's making this claim that his will is preeminent, and his will is irresistible. So, so how can he find fault with anybody? So, I would encourage you guys, if you struggle with this, consider the story of Jonah. The the idea that God's will is irresistible. Consider the story of Jonah. What is God's will for Jonah? God's will for Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, is that Jonah 
would go to the city of Nineveh, the heathen Assyrian violent city of Nineveh, that he would go there, that he would call people to repentance, right? That, that's his intention for Jonah. What does Jonah say? No, I don't want to do it. And he physically flees from the Lord. Now, at that point, does God go, oh, dang, I really hoped that Jonah would be the guy. You know, I guess I got to go find another guy now. Is that what he does? No. The fact that Jonah says no, the fact that Jonah runs away, does that thwart God's will? No. What happens? God causes a fish, is what it says. That's the actual language in Jonah. God causes a fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah finds himself in the belly of this fish. And whether you believe this is a true story or not is really irrelevant, because this overarching point that the story is trying to communicate to us is that God's will will not be thwarted. You cannot run away from him. You cannot say, no, I don't want to do that, God. And God's not going to somehow be bumfuzzled by that or thrown off track by that. No, no, no. Jonah finds himself in the belly of this fish and goes, okay, I guess I will do this. And, and Jonah goes to the city. He preaches, I would guess half-heartedly. He doesn't want to be there. He's not excited about this. He's not putting a lot of thought into it, right? He's not going, how can I really communicate the truth of God to these people? He opens his mouth, he speaks, and the people come to repentance, and he's just like, God's will will not be thwarted. And here's a lesson from Jonah. Life is better when we obey. Life is better when we obey, right? If God has work for you that he's already preordained, life is better when we obey because his will's not going to be thwarted, right? Life's just, just going to get harder until we step into what he has for us, until we say, yes, Lord. Your will be done. We have to not just pray that when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We, ha we actually have to live, God, your will be done. So Paul is asked, if God chooses who his people are and who his people aren't, and that this is all his doing, then how can he find fault with anybody? And Paul responds to that question in a couple of ways. First, with a little bit of a rebuke, and, and then with sort of a hypothetical. So his initial response is, instead of trying to like actually answer that question, is, is this. He says, who are you to question God? Right? Who are you to question God? And I, and I don't know that he means this as a how dare you question God. I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying. It's more like, what kind of a position are you in to ask him about these kinds of things? Because it's almost like, even if he explained it to you, are you even capable of understanding it? Are you even capable of understanding the mechanics of this? You know, the Bible makes the case that God's ways are higher than our ways, that God is not a human being, like we are, we are His creation, we're made in His image, but, but God understands things on a level that we do not understand things. So, in some sense, it is kind of like, who are you? Like, like what gives you the right? But at the same time, it's like, could you even understand it, even if He answered this for you? So that's the first way that he answers. He says, will the molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? It's almost like he's saying, listen, guys, some of these questions are just kind of above your pay grade. 
And we do this all the time. There's so many questions that we understandably ask. And, and again, I don't think Paul's necessarily saying it's wrong to ask questions or that it's wrong to question God in some way. But I do think that he's warning us not to get hung up on our unanswered questions. Not to get hung up on the things that maybe don't totally make sense to us, because those things will always be there. Don't let your lack of understanding of like the big mysteries limit your obedience to God. Because if you're sitting around going, God, I'm going to be faithful to you, I'm going to be obedient to you, as soon as I understand how all of this works, then you're never going to be obedient to him. You're never going to get on that bus, right? If you were Noah, who has been told to build a boat, and not just kind of generally, but you've been given specific plans to build this boat in the middle of the desert, God, I will do this once you give me an idea of what's actually going to happen here, right? No, no, no. Noah wasn't waiting on the full picture. He wasn't waiting on all the answers. He starts building the boat. He wasn't waiting on the approval of other people, others to get it. He was unconcerned. God, your will be done. So if your modus operandi is that, God, I'm going to give myself over to you fully as soon as I can see the whole thing, you're never going to give yourself over to God fully. And here's the deal. If I understand God perfectly... If I get everything about him, then there's no need for me to trust him, really. Right? If there aren't mysteries, then there's no need for faith. So Paul isn't saying don't question God, but I do think he's saying don't wait until you have all the answers to actually practice obedience. So that's the first way that he answers this question. The second way is he throws out a hypothetical answer. This is verse 22. What if... Just hypothetically, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles." unbelievers, vessels of wrath, as Paul calls them, versus believers, people who've received God's grace, his unmerited favor, who've received God's mercy. Unbelievers are not just some nuisance to God. Paul posits that maybe he's actually displaying his power through them, right? Maybe he's actually showing us what he is like through people who don't even know him at all. For example, some of the key players in the gospel narrative are certainly not people who believe that Jesus was the Christ, right? Certainly we're not followers of God. And yet, they are used for God's purposes and for God's glory, despite that fact. If you go back to the story of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, Paul's already talked about Pharaoh here in chapter 9, and how God used Pharaoh for his glory, even though Pharaoh didn't know the Lord, even though Pharaoh had no intention to do God's will, Pharaoh does God's will. So Paul says, what if he's doing these things so that we see just how unbelievable and unexplainable his power is? And just how all-encompassing his power is. So that we look at him and go, God, you are great and glorious and deserving of my full devotion my full allegiance. To Paul's point, though, don't 
expect to fully understand the mechanics of all of this. Instead, just be in awe of God's power and don't hold back your obedience because you don't understand it all. Now, in our last few minutes, I want to address a couple practical applications of what we're learning here because it can be so easy to get bogged down. I think it's impossible, or I think it's possible, rather, for us to take kind of the overarching truth that we're learning in this passage, which is ultimately that God is sovereign, right? That God is all-powerful, that God is in control of all things. I think it's possible to take the overarching truth that God is sovereign and that His will will be done and use that truth in ultimately selfish ways to justify our own lack of obedience. So here are two false takeaways. Two false takeaways that some people have from texts like this. Here's the first one. If God is sovereign and does what He wants, and there's no way that I can thwart His will, then my actions don't matter. Right? If God is the one who's all-powerful, if, he, if He's in control, if His will will be done, it doesn't matter if I say no or yes, His will will be done. If that's true, then my actions don't matter. That's what some people think. First of all, wrong. Scripture is clear that God is supremely concerned that you would bring honor to him through the thoughts of your heart and mind and through your physical actions. What you do and don't do matters greatly to God in the same way that how your children behave matters to you. Because we bring him honor through our lives. We watched uh, the new Mulan movie last night, and, and one of the things that that movie does hit on was the, the very clear historical fact that Asian cultures are all about honor and shame, right? They're cultures that are built on honor and shame. Families are built on honor and shame and bringing honor to family. God cares about that same thing as well. God's desire for your life and for mine as children made in his image is that through our actions, we would bring honor and glory, not to ourselves, but to him. So what you do and don't do matters greatly to God. Um, but this isn't simply that God wants you to act morally, even though he does. It isn't as simple as that. There's also a ton of evidence in Scripture that we can bring our requests, our needs, our petitions before God through prayer, and that he actually responds to those things. That he actually responds to those things. For example, in the story of Moses and Israel that we looked at earlier, or, or we saw a couple weeks ago, rather, um, like they bow down and worship a golden calf. And after all of that happens, God is ready to wipe them out. God says, I am done. I am done with these people. Moses, however, goes before the Lord in prayer and fasting and pleads for the people. And God doesn't say, no, 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 my will is to annihilate them. God actually says, listens to Moses and relents. So there is evidence in Scripture that God can be swayed by our prayers. And you can argue that from a variety of different positions. But I think at the end of the day, we don't understand things in the way that God understands things. For example, we think in a linear fashion. Like we exist within time. Right? We think about beginnings and ends, starts and finishes, certain points in time. We think about milestones. We think about all of these things, and yet God exists outside of time. 
God is not bound by time in the way that we are. So I, I think you could even make the case that God doesn't even think about our lives in the way that we think about them, in, in, in this linear beginning and end type way. God sees the whole. We think of eternity past being back there and eternity future being up there, and, and yet all of this is within God's purview and within his sight all the time. And he knows what has been and what will be. And, you know, like, I don't understand that in the least. And yet somehow his will will be done, and yet I can pray, and there's power in that. Next, if God is the one who chooses who will be saved, then things like evangelism and missions don't matter. If God is the one who chooses who will be saved, then things like evangelism and missions don't matter. This is one that I see perhaps most often. Like, if this is true, then what in the world is the point of us, like, going to another country to share the gospel? If God wants you to be saved, you're going to be saved, Right? And yet, let's not forget some of the things that we've read. Again, think about Jonah. What was God's will? Well, God's will was that the people of Nineveh would repent. Could God have done that in any variety of ways? Absolutely. Right? Could God have rained down this booming voice from heaven? Could God have done signs and wonders? Absolutely. But what does he want to do? He wants to send this one guy who doesn't even really want to go to share the truth of who God is with this group of people. That's his will. That's not removed from his will. That's a part of his will. His will isn't just the outcome. Part of his will is the journey as well. Part of, the, part of his will is how things happen. We have to remember that in our lives. We can be so focused on end goals, where we're going to, that we forget about the fact that God is molding us and shaping us and growing us up into Christ in the midst of the current moment. That the current moment is in its self a destination as far as God is concerned, because he has things that he desires to teach us, ways he desires to shape us. Again, by the way, this is wrong, even though many people think this. If you believe this is true, how do you explain the New Testament, first of all? How do you explain the lives of the apostles? How do you explain guys like Paul and Peter and Thomas, like men who go to the ends of the earth to declare the gospel? right? To share the good news of who Christ is and what he's done. If you're just like, man, God's going to save who he's going to save, and I'm irrelevant, then you're essentially saying the apostles were irrelevant. No, no, no. They were part of God's plan. And today, the church is the way that God is making his appeal to the world. God could do this in a again. He could do all kinds of things. But what he has chosen to do is to use his bride, the church, to go with his spirit. Not just the spirit as an occasional helper that pops in, but literally with his spirit indwelling us to go with his gospel to the world. This is what he has chosen to do out of all the things he could do. And yet what's so comforting to me in the midst of this is that the effectiveness of our witness is not solely based on our eloquence in presenting the gospel, or how great the ministries of our church are. Isn't that amazing? God has called us and sent us and empowered us, and yet at the same time, it doesn't solely rest on us. In fact, a lot of times, he's working in spite of us, right? I, uh, I, re I recorded a podcast with a friend of mine a few weeks ago, 
and we were just kind of talking about the church in America and, and some of the missteps that the church in America has made over the last 50 years or so, and um, just some of the negative things that have occurred in the church. And, and what's amazing is, again, none of those things have thwarted God's plan. God wasn't surprised by any of the stuff that's happened. And, and what's amazing is people are still getting saved. God's still using broken, sinful, flawed people who he's called to himself to be his hands and feet. And so if you sit back and go, and there's no point in me saying anything or doing anything or going anywhere, God's going to do what God's going to do, then all you're saying is, I don't want to be obedient to him. And I'm going to try to justify it somehow. It's not true. We are sent... With the gospel, with this incredible missional purpose to go and declare, as Paul says, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Isn't that amazing? That God could choose to do anything, and, and yet what he has chosen is to use you and me. Not because of anything we've done, not because we deserve that in any way but because it's what he's chosen. Now, so what Paul's doing here in the book of Romans is this. He's helping us see this, that we, if you go back to the beginning, we were dead in our sin. This is what he said in Ephesians as well. We had no hope. We had no future. But then Christ came and died and rose. And now, guess what? Not only do you have a future, but you have a future where you are a child of God. You are a co-heir with Christ. You have a future where he's sanctifying you, not just later on, but now. And even now he's molding you into the man or woman that he would have you be. And he's given you purpose. And it's not just kind of maybe here and there he's got some stuff for you to do. Or maybe in spur of the moment he comes, oh, maybe I can use him or her for that. No, no, no. He's already prepared this stuff for you, for you to walk in it. Does that make you feel like incredibly privileged when you could just be dead in your sin with no hope and with no understanding? And yet if you see these things, it's not because you're just real smart. Scripture says, no, 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 it's because the Lord has illumined your heart. Those who come to Christ are those whom the Lord draws. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. We see the beauty of who he is and what he's done. And we go, how in the world could you use me? Why in the world would you use me? And yet he says, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What an incredible thing. Give him praise this morning in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Even though in no way is it enough to just say thank you. There's no way we can repay you. There's no way we're, we can express our gratitude enough. And that's why our worship will be eternal. Father, forgive us even now when our worship only happens on Sundays. 
Forgive us now in our individual lives when we don't stop and take time to notice your goodness and your grace and to give you praise. Forgive us even now, Father, when we try to forget you or try to subvert you or try to be disobedient to you so that our will might be done. Father, help us to see the beauty of you and your purposes. And may we not simply pray your will be done, but Father, teach us how to live in obedience to your Spirit. Help us not just to be people who claim salvation, but help us to be people who walk in salvation in just extreme gratitude and humility for receiving this undeserved, unmerited blessing. God, you are good, you are holy, you are just. And we worship you. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, Father, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Amen.